Welcome back, listeners, to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, and I'm here with a special guest doing the intro. What's your name? Caroline. Caroline? Caroline, how old are you? Four. Four. When are you going to be five? Uh, September 29th. So pretty much, almost by the time this episode is released, you're going to be five years old. <laughs> are you going to have a birthday party? Yes. Where? At the park. At the park. And what are you going to be for Halloween? Because that's a month later. Um... I am going to be Wonder Woman and for and someone coming over for my birthday party and, and it's Wonder Woman and I'm going to be dressed like Wonder Woman. So you're telling me that Wonder Woman is going to come to your birthday party and you're going to be dressed like her to get ready for Halloween and she's going to be here a month before Halloween at your birthday party? Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Caroline. So Caroline and I just want to give you a little shout out about a few things. First off is, Caroline, should they go to brewtheology.org? Yeah. Why? Just because um, it's a little cool. It is a little cool. It's a lot of cool. Go there. You can look at the different ways in which you can sponsor and partner and be a part of this amazing alliance. If you want to support us, you can donate online. We have a Patreon page as well. And we've got several chapters up and running, don't we, Caroline? Yep. We do. We've got one here in Denver. We've got Northwest Metro along with Canton, Ohio that's going to be coming up pretty soon. Greeley, Colorado just started. And we've got the Jersey Boys out in New Jersey. Caroline, did I used to live in New Jersey? Yes. That's right. And that was before you were born, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so if you like this episode with Michelle Warren, which I know you will, make sure you share that online, rate it, review it on iTunes, and Carolyn and I will talk to you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Welcome, everybody, to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're here at the Madison household. Lovely night. I'm Ryan. I'm here with Janelle, Rob, Ken. We're going to be talking about the power of proximity tonight with a special guest, Michelle Warren. So good to have you, Michelle. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So, Michelle Ferrigna Warren is the Advocacy and Policy Engagement Director for the Christian Community Development Association, which we'll talk about later. She's an Immigration, Education, and Human Service Policy Specialist and is an adjunct faculty member at Denver Seminary. That's, that's my alma mater. With over 20 years' experience working in Christian community development, Michelle is a part of the National Evangelical Immigration Table. We'll talk about that word later, evangelical, and helps consult from the National Immigration Forum. She's a founding staff member of Open Door Ministries, a large community development corporation here in Denver, and her husband David and their three children. They live in an immigrant neighborhood right here in the Mile High City. So most recently, Michelle wrote the book, Power of Proximity. That's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. So we're gonna jump in, but before we do that, I wanna start with your first quote, and then you're gonna talk about your life if you're okay with that. Yeah, sure. All right. So you said that when you wake up in the morning, And the system works for you. You think it's a good and just system. You frame the way that you see the world through this lens. Your lens, shaped by your personal and collective experiences, helps craft a narrative that determines the way that you move forward in the world. So, Michelle, your lens has changed, to say the least? Absolutely, because (laughs) I keep waking up in a different place. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's what happens when you write a book. That's right. So over 20 years ago, you chose to lead the community in which you were born in order to live in close proximity to the poor as an expression of justice. Um, so tell us about that transition. Who were you before this societal shift? Why did you choose to leave one community and then live in another one that is has is very different from the one that you came from? 
Yeah, well, I don't think it was originally my idea. You know, I think it was more, you often will hear the word call, and I think that that was definitely my story. When I was in college, I was just doing outreach ministries with churches and a juvenile detention home for girls and tutoring, doing some... Um, like outreach programs and, and Bible classes and the projects. And it was during those experiences. And then also meeting my husband who was having some similar experiences that we decided that we were probably going to get married and, you know, what would our life look like? And I was excited. I think we were both excited because we both loved ministry so much. I didn't think about doing it as my full-time vocation, but we knew we'd probably end up in a low-income community somewhere, um, you know, hopefully doing urban church planting. That was our original thought. And it wasn't until, you know, we were starting to have relationships there that Dave said, you know, I don't want to move in and out. I don't want to go back and forth. I really think we need to live in the same community, you know, that we're going to be working and worshiping in. And it was a new idea. You know, it wasn't something I knew. Um, I didn't know anybody who lived in those kinds of uh, places. I didn't really know anybody. None of my neighbors had historically been poor. And so that's, that's really the big change is what I, I was a kid before I moved in. I mean, I graduated from college and, you know, moved into an all black, um, apartment complex, but beforehand, I guess I would just say I was white. I lived in a pretty privileged background. I had attended private you know, Christian schools and didn't have uh, a big view of the world. And then moving into a community where I was a dominant culture minority really enabled me to see, you know, the other in a new way. I think sometimes we're afraid of the other. And so they were my neighbors. They were my friends. We were working and doing life together. And I just learned so very much. But I learned that the systems of employment and the way we viewed police and, and opportunities that I would have that they just didn't have those same opportunities that kind of goes back to when you wake up in the morning and the system works for you, you think it's good. So my former life, I thought the system was really good because it worked for me. When I moved into my proximate to the poor community, it didn't take that many years to realize because you start asking questions like how are people going to move forward that nobody did, not one person's individual effort got them into this place, you know, that there were just societal issues that were going on, keeping people in this you know, and what I, we've now I kind of refer to as more systemic injustice and systemic barriers. And so noticing that from a very up close and front perspective changed the way I saw the goodness and the rightness of our laws. Thank you. So you had uh, been involved in CCDA before 20 years ago or just is this like a uh, last 10 years or... How, yeah. Cause so, that, what, what is CCDA? Because that's been a big yeah. part of your journey. Yeah. Well, CCDA is just a professional network, just like doctors and nurses and teachers have professional networks. Um, CCDA is a professional network of people who are doing Christian community development. And you can be a pastor and you can be a nonprofit um, leader, uh, teacher, social worker, anybody who's doing Christian community development as an individual or, or their organization can be a part of this professional network. I actually didn't know anything about CCDA until 1995 which is a couple years after I moved into our community and had been teaching in a public school. I just remember when I did hear about it, you know, David and I actually were in Denver for a summer while he was doing an internship for his master's degree. And everyone kept hearing what we cared about. And they're like, oh, CCDA, you guys, you guys must be a part of CCDA. We're like, we've never heard of CCDA. We don't know who John Perkins is, but we'll believe you and, and you know, take your word for it. And so just because of finances and, and me working, Dave actually went to the CCDA conference the fall of 95. And when he brought 
he brought books home and pamphlets. I've never been so hungry for anything in my life. I mean, who reads every little pamphlet flyer that comes from a conference bag? But that was really my story. And that's when I began to hear it, you know, that, that there was a shared philosophy and that what it has been is been, it's been a connection for me to find out of other people who have made these choices, who really want to live by a certain philosophy um, of doing Christian community development and has helped me. I, I've said it's one of the biggest things that has sustained me for the long haul. So. So the fun question is, were you in St. Louis? I believe it was in 99 or 2000. I wasn't. I, well, okay. actually, wait, I'm trying to think. There's, there's been a St. Louis, I feel like 2007, and I was in that one. Okay, we went, uh, we were at a Spanish church at the time and found ourselves in that situation. And, and this thing came across us, our desk, and we're like, we should go to that. We're only three hours <laughs> away. And so we went to St. Louis and that's where we encountered CCDA the first time. Yeah, I definitely don't think I, what did you say, 1998 and 2000? I think it's 90, I think it was 99. Okay, well, I had just had a baby. So basically, okay. you know, you can see when I do and do not go and it all has to do with pregnancy and children. <laughs> <laughs> but by about 2005, when my youngest was two, I never have missed one since. Yeah. yeah, and then about five years ago, I, I actually, it was one of the, it was a really hard decision. I decided to, you know, leave working at a local level and started working for the National Association and pulled in that direction, but really believe in what we do at the local level, so wanted to be a part of the support for the association. Yeah, so you had talked about these pillars or values, and there's seven or nine of them, is that right? Or it's right between the two. It's not seven okay. or nine, it's okay. eight. We had eight. Yeah. <laughs> eight. Eight is yes, a great biblical eight. number, too. Yeah. Seven, eight, oh. nine. <laughs> so then, uh, and then you had mentioned three specifically when we were at the pub last week. Sure, I can should you, I should really be able to rattle them all off. Well, so the first... All eight, right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I think I can do it. I actually probably can. I'll have to, you know, pause a little bit here. But no, the first three... Where CCD is about 30 years old, it was founded by Dr. John Perkins. He had already, you know, been writing and speaking in a lot of different communities around this concept of Christian community development. And his three pillars were reconciliation, redistribution, and relocation. So living in the community, building bridges of reconciliation to people of different race, culture, socioeconomic divides. And then redistribution is an actual physical doing in or sewing into the things that have been broken. A lot of times we think about it in economics. And I think in the early years of CCD, that was definitely the way it was. I have a little bit broader view, and I think others in the association do as well. But I'll pass that for the moment. If we don't have time to re-loop it, I guess, you know, I'll have to write some white paper or something on it. But I guess, all right, so the other five. The other five have come, and now I've got to close my eyes and think. Leadership development and empowerment, listening to the community, uh, church-based and holistic I got them all. So you'd say your life's pretty holistic these days. <laughs> it's been it's holistic for a long time, which is really, so living was just an expression. It was just a beginning. Changed the way I saw it. That's why I talk about it being powerful. But really, it's all the stuff that came after. I mean, being aware of poverty, being aware of injustice is just the beginning, especially as a Christian. You know, the, the reality is, is we are called to action. You know, it doesn't have to be some special calling of relocation. We're supposed to be called to act. And really, my story is one of moving from an awareness to an action. And the reason I decided to write the book, in addition that I thought it was time to start preaching what I'd been practicing, was I really want to drive the narrative of the church beyond just talking about justice to actually doing it and not doing it. I think sometimes we think that compassionate acts are justice. That's not justice. That's mercy. And I'm glad that the church in the last decade or so has recognized, at least the evangelical church from where I came, you know, is recognizing that God has a heart for the poor, but it's beyond 
backpacks and service projects. Those are fine, but that's not the doing justice that, you know, is at the heart of who God is and what his people should be doing. One of the questions that I had, Michelle, that came out of last week and sort of is something that, that I think I've thought about before, and this is something you probably have way more experience and expertise to be able to speak on, is how do you talk about the power of proximity? And you, you spoke a little bit last week at your talk at the brewery uh, about, you know, shedding, right? Like you shed a lot of things and I'm not exactly sure of the term you used, but you, I don't know if it was shedding baggage or shedding eye uh, and what it takes to really live in proximity to the poor. So you have to give up certain privileges or certain comforts or certain uh, normalities of your life in order to live in proximity, right? And so when you're, when you're encountering middle-class Christian evangelical who uh, is wondering how can, you know, if, if I really live in proximity to the poor, there's a lot of things I'd have to think about shedding or giving up. And I'd have to consider that there's actually assets in the poor community that I don't have access to. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and about conversations maybe you've had with middle-class evangelical Christians who have asked you about that? Well, I'm actually getting a lot more questions about that in the last month since my book launched. I didn't typically talk too much about it. Um, I, you know, so this is a kind of a newer conversation to even be talking about this. I think before I even go into it, I think it's important that y that your listeners or that you know that I don't think living in proximity as a martyr is at all helpful. And I don't feel sorry for myself or my kids or my husband or, you know, I mean, there's always sacrifices when you move away from comfort, right? But I'll just go back to Christ. I mean, you see in Philippians, it's that whole passage of emptying yourself, right? That Christ emptied himself and he emptied himself of his privilege, of his rights. I mean, there was a lot of things that he had just to become proximate to us, you know, to put in the wheels of motion of redemption. I mean, Jesus could have fixed every from heaven, but he didn't. He moved proximate to be alongside us. And I, so as I, I talk a little bit about maybe some of my own shedding or, or however, I don't know if I want to use that term again, maybe I'll think about how I would want to say it, but you know, proximity isn't just where you locate. It's the purpose with which you live. You know, Christ's proximity to us, he didn't just live as a man. He lived alongside us. And, you know, we see that points, you know, shared temptations. He had hunger. He had excitement. He had relationships. All of those things. His proximity had purpose. And our proximity needs to have purpose as well. So it's not just the act of moving into a neighborhood. I often say that, and this is a dangerous, polarizing conversation to move into or relocate into urban areas now because of gentrification. It's like, well, your presence may be changing the economics. Well, you know what? Those economics have been put in place. And as a policy person who studies, you know, different block grants and all the different things that have happened to create gentrification, I think Christians moving into the city have not been the huge wave, you know, of change that we're seeing in gentrification. But, but I think, you know, one of the pushbacks, as I would say, is, is moving into a place of proximity to the poor is really not just about your, your, your location, but more about your presence. And what I talk about, you know, getting rid of was, is really more that my narrow mind, you know, in having my lens expanded. There's a lot of stereotypes that divide us from the poor. You know, the poor are dangerous, or you're going to, you know, get shot, or, you know, gangs, or you know, all of these different stereotypes. And that 
And that is true. I do know a lot of that that goes around. But for the most part, people are the same, you know, in the sense that they want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to get along with their neighbors. They, you know, want to see their kids do well in school. And and I think when you're in the environment that I grew up in, and, and sometimes this is true just of middle class or even higher economic, you know, our socioeconomic status usually is what we have in common. So, you know, we don't we look at our, we know we have so much that the same that we look for our distinctiveness, right? Think of all the track houses. You've got this plan, but my, but my wall is this color and, you know, but my daughter or son does this type of task or I'm the, you know, we try to point out our distinctivenesses and that was my first, you know, 20 years or so was, was we all kind of knew we were similar. So how were we different? When I moved into my community as the only white and married person, obviously I was quite different, but we didn't really focus on our differences. And I've noticed that in the city, we all know we're different. There's so much diversity that we only focus on our similarities. And so, yeah, there were things that I would probably have given up, but I, but I gained things I didn't even know that I was missing in the sense of community. Um, the world that I grew came from was very individualistic and that I kind of even put with a moral bearing, like somehow this was good and right and holy, rugged individualism. And there's just no place for that in the city. You know, if, and, and there's really no place then when you look at biblical justice and the restoration of wholeness for a whole community. But um, yeah, the, the way the city works is people are, you know, just assuming we're all in this together and, you know, we're all going to achieve. I, you know, when my kids have done well, they've actually acted like they birthed them, you know, like, oh, our daughter has done so well. No, this is my daughter. Yes. Okay. This is our shared daughter, you know? And so it's just, a, it's just the celebration of life is so rich that we all take credit for each other's successes and we all, you know, grieve and really support each other in loss. I, it's so different from where I've come that you just can take my word for it unless you're in the environment. Um, but the family's tight, you know, it's tight because you need each other. You don't have self-sufficiency. Not everybody has a lawnmower. Not everybody has two working cars. Not everybody has, you know, the same things. And so you're just more generous because you've been without and you want to help when you have extra. Along those lines. Um, so you said you, you've, you heard a call, you feel you're fulfilling your call. Um, and there needs to be a purpose is presence the purpose or do you see some kind of action or goal or change that you're hoping I'm for so as part glad of you're this? asking me that because I really like to talk about prophetic presence. You're not supposed to just bear witness to the pain and suffering of people and do nothing. You're supposed to be compelled to act. And that's, especially as a Christian, we're responsible for what we see and we need to respond with action. One of my biggest pushbacks is that, especially in church circles, that we are aware and all we do is talk about it. And then we have like digital outrage on social media. And somehow that feels active. And I'm just like, that is not helping anyone. You know, I mean, I, I participate in some of that myself. But the whole point is that we should not be talking about things. We should not be just observing and talking we should be doing and that's what makes proximity powerful is it compels you to act and deal with things that you never thought you would and just going back to Christ himself you know he was a person of action you know he took on flesh and did something and that's what we need to do too I, I think it's interesting just because you know I keep saying I don't want to keep talking about it I want to do something and when I think of Christ I mean in John 1 you see he's the word he actually calls himself the talk right? But his talk was not just talking. It was doing, it was active. And so I, that's where I, I mean, I, I think that, yes, you're right. 
a calling drew me out, but I don't think I'm supposed to be that unique. I really think that my eyes were just being opened and we need to call the church to be followers of Christ in very active ways because that's what Jesus did. Someone who called himself the talk and did something with what, you know, what he saw and, and came into contact with. So one of the criticisms that I hear from some of my activist friends is kind of this idea of the white savior. And I know that's not what you mean, but can you kind of parse that out for us so that people understand that you're not going in to save them, but you are doing actions just kind of parse that out sure. for us. I mean, that's why you kind of have to read all 194 pages because Absolutely. you are not going to miss that that's not it. I mean, the whole point of action is joining people in their struggle. You know, I I love Lila Watson's quote. I'm trying to get I'm going to get it wrong. You know, kind of if you've come here to rescue or save me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound in mine, then let's work together. And that's really, I mean, and, and I felt a responsibility. I've made a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes, but I certainly made a lot of mistakes. And I just was very ignorant in the front end of the 24 years that I've been, been living. And I wanted to help people learn from my own mistakes. And so a lot of the content of my book talks about that presence and that attitude of listening to the community and really allowing them to shape the way you think. This was never about me coming and saving the world. You know, this was me about joining other people. God has never not been a part of these communities. And if we're really going to move from an awareness of injustice to action, it's gonna drive our understanding that the reason that the poor are poor is because literally they've been sinned against historically, that systemic barriers, injustice didn't just happen. And while it may, a lot of times it was unintended consequences, and I could probably talk way too long on policy and unintended consequences because that's sort of really my, my niche. But, um, you know, those kinds of things may have sort of been the cause of, of, you know, policies that were put in place. But if injustice didn't just happen, alleviating injustice isn't going to just happen. And so we need to not only recognize who we are. For me, I was a white evangelical in this conversation, but we under, need to understand you know, racial implications and how much race matters and racial identity and really listening to people and following people um, who've been impacted. I, I, I mean, I often will tell you, you just, you just cannot fix a problem you do not understand. So that should eliminate the white saver mentality to begin with. If you have come, like I said, to fix me, don't bother. This isn't the the problem, but if you want to help me undo what keeps me and my people or whatever in in you know in systemic barriers, then you know I think that there's a lot of work to be done, and I think we need to join people. So yeah, you can't understand, uh, you can't fix a problem you don't understand, and you cannot understand it from a place that's far away. And so I think proximity gives you the lens to see what's really going on, so you can join others with what you have um, to to move forward together. So. I mean, I think this just walks into another question that's probably in your book as well. But um, sometimes when people hear that this is a system, this is something that's been functioning for a long time that's caused this, they get really skeptical and many get very angry about like, I'm not a part of this. Well, yeah, actually you are. So how does that conversation go and how do you help introduce people to the concept of kind of systemic evil and and then how to help them move forward out of that awareness. How long is this podcast again? As long as you want. <laughs> this could be a two-part, three-part. Yeah, I was going to say, this is really a lot. Um, 
there's a few things. I mean, it kind of goes back to that first sentence. If you wake up in the morning and you think the system works for you, I mean, if it works for you, you think it's good. So that's some of the undoing, right? If it's worked for you, why in the world doesn't work for other people? And that was some of my mentality. Like, well, you know, they, they don't have, they aren't, you know, moving forward in life because they don't have the, you know, it was a, such an ignorant um, perspective because the system had worked for me. And so there's, there's two things that I would say is racism plays and when anytime you're going to talk about systemic oppression in a in a diverse setting or in a poor in a setting you know people who are poor you cannot dance around racism and that makes people uncomfortable too i mean talk about trigger words you know that those two words systemic injustice and race you know are very linked together and i think because many of us especially for those of us who are white we have somehow defined racism as overt racial slurs and if I'm not using overt racial slurs or if I'm not marching down Charlottesville with a, you know, a flame, which just was happening a month ago, you know, then I must somehow be not be a part of this conversation. And I, I do bring this up in one of the chapters. It's called Race Matters. And Janet Helms, she's a sociologist out of Harvard, and she has all these stages of understanding a white racial identity. And I suggest people look at it. I really do. I think it, I think she does a great job, just like Maslow's hierarchy of need or Kohlberg's, you know, stages of moral development. I think Helms, you know, understanding of white racial identity is really, really important because she defines where I would have started this, you know, I started my journey in stage one, you know, probably all all triggered with all of what we've already talked about as the happy racist. I don't, I would not think that, you know, black people shouldn't move forward or, you know, Latinos should have, shouldn't have the same opportunities. And so, so they're happy with the, the movement of people forward. They would never, you know, want them to suffer ill, but they're still a racist because they still don't even see, you know, how racism is playing itself out. So what I try to tell people is racism is not the moving target we think it is. It's not in one individual act. Racism has embedded itself in systems. Sometimes we know about it. Sometimes we don't. We see it now. We've got, we've got immigration issues. All right. For 16 years, we can't get the dream act. You know why we wouldn't want to move young people who are, you know, college, you have college, have have been serving in our military, move them forward to some type of, you know, path of legality where it's not in an executive order. And I, I mean, it's beyond me, but you go back to it. It's really rooted in racism. And we've created a rule or a system that says we don't have to care about them. And even a narrative that we've adapted that somehow, you know, to to even care about them is somehow, you know, not just or not lawful. So we, so we, I think it's really important for us just to evaluate the systems that our people are impacted by. Mass incarceration is another one. You know, you study just even the Jim Crow laws, and then I think Michelle Alexander did a great job in her in her book, The New Jim Crow, giving us an articulation to understand the racist system of our of you know of our our incarceration, just the way we go about who even even drug scheduling and and what kind of drugs get certain sentencing versus what you know other people get. The over policing of minority communities, and you know I I was talking to my daughter in her, I won't say what college she's at, but in her first year of college, she's like, man, there's so much heroin going on, you know, in these dorms. And I said, oh, I'm going to call the police. I'm so tired of them just showing up, trying to, you know, get all these people in my community that, you know, disproportionate amount of, you know, black and brown people, you know, who have possession of drugs. And she's like, mom, please don't do that. And I just thought to myself, I was like, of course, they're not going to come anyway. You know, that we just don't even have policing, but people, you know, white people who are doing drug crimes, 
think somehow they should be exempt from the felonies that other people, you know, have at 17 and 18 marijuana. Not, not in Colorado anymore, but, you know, people, that's a, that's a Schedule 1 felony drug charge, you know, and that's on your record for life. So we just, the way we look at drugs, the way we, the way we manage our, you know, like I said, our policing, we can look at our public schools. I, mean, I don't want to take us down that road, but racism, we have, we have made it into rules, and somehow we act like those rules can't be changed. And I think those of us, I, I feel like my friends of color, I've been trying to explain that so much. And it really hasn't been since the last year and a half that I thought, you know, maybe that's too heavy of a burden. And maybe people who, what we call in our community, like sort of woke white people, really need to share more of their white awake story to help people not be triggered by the word systemic injustice or racism, but really try to have an honest conversation of what that looks like so that we can really grow and make some change. And to kind of follow up on my earlier question um, about uh, what kind of, you know, goals or, or um, you know, what kind of uh, uh, things you're trying to do by living in proximity. And uh, I hear you talking about um, your desire to see um, action on a political level and that you're, you're working in the political circles and things like that. Can you give me some, like, specific actions or goals that you're actually working towards at this time? So I think it's really important to know that proximity is, I mean, it's, it's no longer a decision. I mean, I've lived there for 24 years, so I've lived in the same house for over 20. So that's, you know, kind of like beyond, I think my eyes have been open, my lens has been shaped and I'm going to continue to do what I need to do. I think, I think another thing is, is that when you're in a relationship with people, you're not working on issues, you're working, fighting alongside your family. So I'm only going to fight what my family needs right now. It's part of loving my neighbor as myself. And so I can give you actionable items, but I'm going to do it within relationship, okay? Because I can't just say, okay, well, I want everybody to do backpack drives because school is starting. We want to help immigrant children. Or, I mean, those are good. I don't want to, you know, keep sending your backpacks and your crayons. We appreciate it. But the second thing, you know, I, I want, you know, good tutoring programs so people can, you know, so kids can learn math and English, especially if, you know, English is their second language. And I think that's really important, actionable kinds of things. But it wasn't until I began to realize that kids that we were tutoring were undocumented, had no future beyond, you know, high school. I mean, they were getting to the point where why should I even graduate from high school? I'm just going to do construction anyway. Why should I even, you know, try to do college? I don't have any scholarships. And so I am fighting to the nail every aspect of immigration reform that impacts my community. Because, and I'm fighting against things like a ridiculous border wall because while I'm not for open borders, that is the most, it's just not going to fix the problem, you know, and, and I have all of these ideas of, you know, ports of entry and, you know, if we really do care about stolen social security numbers, why do we put it on blue construction paper? I mean, there's just a lot of issues and I can get into a lot of the different things of immigrant contributions and the injustice of immigration, but I don't want to do that. I just want to say that the actionable items aren't on the list. It's what are we fighting for today so that we can undo the harm that has been done for you. And so some people say, well, they shouldn't have crossed. Well, you know what? Our economy demands it. We have two signs at the border, help wanted and do not cross. And we desperately want immigrants to take their lives into their hands and smuggle themselves across borders so that we don't have to pay $8 for a tomato. 
we also really want them to, I mean, it's the, it's the flat out truth that the Social Security Administration and the Department of Homeland Security have decided not to share information. They've got an agreement. They're not going to share information. And so all of these mismatched Social Security numbers have resulted in billions of dollars, like 12, 13, 14 billion dollars a year in revenue that goes into Social Security, but will never be taken out by undocumented people. So there's a lot of injustice that we as Americans, we continue to play into a constant chronic narrative that is embedded in racism and not lifting up the Imago Day that says we want your work we just don't want you and my neighbors have I mean we're just a family and I am so offended that you would want my neighbors work but you wouldn't want them how dare you and so not you but you know how dare people do that so so my actionable items is whatever we can do to undo and move people forward that's justice that's biblical justice justice in the church in many circles is either overused and has become codified and lost its value or it's a trigger word and people don't want to use it. And that bothers me because justice is a biblical word that speaks to the wholeness and the restoration of people. Jesus and the gospel is justice. It's the writing of everything that was wrong. And so my actual items, I mean, I, I got bunches of things I'm working on, but it's really just tied to relationships. And I would, I would question the white person who is working on issues outside of relationship. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, as we're talking about proximity here, I'd love for us to even even go further back. If you're if you're willing and able, not using names, of course. Uh, if there are stories and people in your neighborhood, whether it's 20 years ago or now, that are pressing, that are making your making you you know stay up at night, uh, shaking you, that are you're going to make me cry, Ryan. Well, hey, <laughs> well, we're we not just here to brute theology. We're we're all, we're no, don't edit it out. That's the you, truth. You wrote I mean, the book. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Relationships are what drive us all. You know, I want my kids to do well. I want, I'm going to do everything I can do to fight for them. And so as a Christian, when you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, you're supposed to fight for them as much. I'm careful before I share too many stories only because I feel like my neighbors have had their stories to be told over and over again. And I feel like people of privilege decide whether or not their story is heartbreaking enough to move them. And so I often don't share names and stories. I share about my own transformation because I don't mind being vulnerable and sharing that. And plus, I feel like I was a white person. I'm speaking to other white people. And I speak in theology because it is a timeless you know, uh, truth. And if it can't cut through the heart of the most prejudiced and privileged person, then I don't, I don't even know why I would be wasting my time in conversation. So it's, it's not that I wouldn't want to answer your question, Ryan, but I also just want to realize that those stories are sacred things that people have shared with me, their details. And so I will just say this, that, you know, last week when DACA was repealed, of course, I want a legislative solution. I don't want an executive order. But when it was repealed, the amount of texts and phone calls that I had to, to, to start engaging with people who were going to lose their temporary protected status, I didn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep that night because my adrenaline and my anxiety were so incredibly high. And I worked out so hard hoping that maybe that would do the fix. Because people are not only scared, but they have reasons to be scared. 
and their ability and the work that they've done is so tremendous. So yeah, we have 800,000 stories of young people who were brought here by no choice of their own, three months, two months, three years old, five years old. I mean, thinking of people in their ages that their parents or their grandparents brought them here. They were educated in our public school systems. They graduated from high school. One received the Daniels Fund, which is a full ride to any school around the country. And it was revoked because he was undocumented. I mean, these are amazing people who have finally, five years ago, were given a temporary protected status. That was nothing except you don't have to be afraid that you're going to get kicked out because you've got this protective status and you now have a legal work permit. That was all that it did. And those young people that I know have not squandered one minute. You know, we talk about how, oh, the teenager doesn't start until after, you know, isn't finished until about 25. Not if you're undocumented and not if you've been given that opportunity. I don't know anybody who squandered that time. They went to college as fast as they can. They have graduated as engineers, as graphic designers, as social workers, as, you know, they're in law school. They're amazing, amazing. So there's 800,000 stories that are very similar, you know, over and over again about young people who are finally given an opportunity to have those barriers removed. And last week... They were told they have six months. And I was talking to some colleagues today in D.C., and it's it's sad because Congress has already decided to forget about them. You know, we're now talking about tax reform and the budget, and we're going to talk about, I mean, North Korea is important, you know, and Russia. I mean, these are all important things, but so are the lives of people who had opportunities for five years, and now we're going to take them away. Well, that was the end of part one. We will have part two coming up next week. Go to Twitter at Brew underscore Theology along with Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology. Make sure you share this online. And one more thing. Don't forget to share the brew. That's right. Don't forget to share the brew. Thanks, Caroline. Welcome.